right now, I'd say 2020 is a year where AI becomes accessible and affordable for the larger nonprofit community. And of course, the more you spend, the more accurate answers you get, but it is not out of reach for a small nonprofit that is wanting better insight into their data. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hi, this is the Creating Community for Good podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Simons. Today's episode is about the power of artificial intelligence. The for-profit sector has advanced rapidly in this area, but few had tackled the technology in the nonprofit space until now. Can we predict gratitude by using big data? What's holding people back from being more generous during these times? The nonprofit community needs to stay relevant in the public eye and keep evolving in this ever-changing and modern world. In today's episode of Creating Community for Good, I interview a dear friend who is at the forefront of this topic. He's presented on TED Talks about the matter and has been featured as one of Forbes' top 100 influencers in philanthropy. His name is Nathan Chappelle. Some of the key takeaways for this episode are what's holding people back from being more generous during these times, how artificial learning helps people match their passion with purpose for philanthropy, and how to predict gratitude by using big data. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind, with the intention to inform, inspire, and evolve. Let's go. Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence for healthcare, but hopefully this can be applied to all nonprofits. I want to take a broader swath perspective. Americans give roughly 2% of their earnings to philanthropy. What is holding back people from being more generous? Yeah, I mean, that's a uh, $400 billion question. So I think there's a lot of answers to that. I think a lot of different people have thoughts on why philanthropy has remained at 2.1% of GDP for 40 years. And even why, you know, with things like the internet and mobile giving, that philanthropy really has not increased. In fact, individuals mainly are giving less year over year. And so personally, I think there's a combination or a confluence of factors. And one has to do with tax code changes. I think we saw that with Giving USA results last year and that, frankly, we did find out that some people are motivated to give because they can itemize their, or get a deduction, and that definitely changed things. But I uncovered something a few years ago when I was researching this topic in that there's a direct relationship between giving and religion. And in fact, anyone who associates themselves with any religion gives twice as much as someone who does not. doesn't matter what religion it is. At the same time, you have a disassociation with religion in the country at about 7% a year. So I think for a lot of reasons, people are not being taught the virtues of giving the same way that they were in previous generations. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. But I also think with all of that is that there's so much information out there. People are inundated with emails and social media and just, just nonstop flow of information that it's harder and harder to pick out and find organizations that you really resonate with. So ultimately, I think philanthropy comes down to resonance and and how you or I, our, our personal values are aligned with an organization. 
And in the sea of information out there, it's harder to find those organizations that are meant for us in a way where they're, they're, they're so aligned with you that you couldn't say no, that they're so compelling because they are in your essence and you have a visceral reaction about them. So I think it's a lot of different things. And frankly, is my work in AI for the last three or four years is really about really weeding through all that and trying to determine resonance between people and organizations. Mm, yeah. So tell me more about that. How does artificial learning enable us to identify individuals where they were able to pitch to them their true passion, their resonance, their core values, so we can match their passion with purpose for, for philanthropy? Yeah. So while the idea is not new, the, the technology and the ability to compute very quickly in an environment that actually is learning is new. And frankly, it, even though it's been around for several years and used extensively in the private sector, it's just not been affordable or available to the nonprofit sector until now. So if you think about the fact that, you know, we're very aware living in this country that, you know, we have what is called or we call a digital exhaust. Everything you do has a digital footprint. If you're on Facebook or Instagram or using a rewards program at a grocery store or the mall, you're leaving a digital footprint of everything that you do. And the idea really pre-machine learning is that all that data is useful for a single purpose that, you know, a grocery store could determine that you buy non-fat milk or almond milk over whole milk, things like that, but have not been able to all of your your digital footprint from lots of different places to create a more holistic picture or persona of who you are and what you either aspire toward, what you resonate with. And so the idea in philanthropy, and this is still in the very kind of beginning stages, I mean, AI will be pervasive in the nonprofit world over the next three years, five years, 10 years. It will be in every facet of, of philanthropy is that as humans, you make a, a decision to give to an organization because of how it makes you feel or how you want it to make, make you feel. And there's trails of that information by things, other things you do online. So if you, um, I've used the example a lot in pet adoption. So like an ASPCA, you know, so ASPCA historically has always looked at people as animal lovers, right? So it's, like someone is, you know, they care about animals, so they're a good prospect. When in fact, people, the vast majority are either dog people or, or cat people. Like there's great debate about this, right? And people tend to be, you know, one or the other mostly. Well, with your digital footprint of how many cat videos you watch on YouTube or how many dog videos you share on Facebook or send or, or any pieces of digital footprint, you can now quickly discern whether you're a cat person or a dog person, meaning that they can tailor a solicitation to you that wasn't both cats and dogs. It would be one or the other based on how you identify yourself. Hmm. And and yeah. that is just an example of that personalization that nonprofits can use big data to figure out kind of who you are and, and the things that you really enjoy. That's really interesting. How do nonprofits get that data? How do they get that digital footprint? Yeah, so lots of different ways, and it depends on what sector you're in. So there's a lot of data in different, and I, I'll describe a couple different nonprofit verticals, and every vertical lends itself to different types of data. One of the easiest is healthcare. Second to that is probably higher education, arts organizations even though. So if you're an arts organization 
and you have an idea of what your members look like. They usually fit a certain profile. They usually spend a certain amount. They, they join at a certain level. They're sustainers. And then they become major gift donors eventually. They, it basically is kind of unpacking what those individuals and how they operate. Do they spend a lot of money in the gift shop? You know, do they give gifts beyond just their membership? Things like that. Mm. The, one of the most fun examples I like to get people to think about is really more higher ed. Because I think historically, you know, people you have know, gone to college and, you know, you graduate from college and you're treated like an alum. Like, at, you know, you, you wear the cap and gown and the next day you're treated like alum. And for what that means for 90% of universities or colleges is that you get an alumni newsletter, you get invited to alumni events, and then you choose whether you go or not. Now, the, the interesting thing about that is that the university really doesn't have any indication at that point if you're a good prospect or a bad prospect. They just treat everyone the same. And it only is through this repetition of sending you more emails and sending more invitations to get engaged. And either people go one way or the other. They either get more engaged or they don't. For the vast majority, they don't. So our, you know, kind of thinking around this is that if if you're in college, you leave so much data behind about your experience as a college student. So you were either a college student that lived on campus or you weren't, or you were a, a, a individual that went to all the sporting events or didn't, or pledged or didn't, or had student debt or didn't, or had, got straight A's or got straight C's, or you had 12 parking tickets and, you know, and a couple of reprimands, or you graduated early. And so every single person their student experience was unique to them. Mm. And in, in higher ed, there's a massive data trail. I mean, if you wanted to get into knowing how many school sweatshirts you bought with a school logo on it, the data exists. But it's this way of thinking about math data and compiling it all so that the day of graduation, a university has this idea of this is someone that is going to go the distance with us. Like by all accounts, like they score so high on affinity or engagement with this university that we need to treat them differently. Maybe they get special invitations or they get put in a portfolio or whatever versus someone that took six years to graduate, lived off campus, and actually was in a degree that it doesn't lend itself to a lot of engagement. So it's this idea of getting away from thinking about everyone the same and really narrowing in on a, a specific individual's experience using the data that they left behind. Hmm. And if you're creative, in every vertical, there's a lot of digital exhaust. It's just you have to get creative to find it and put those pieces together. Hmm. So can you give me a specific example of artificial intelligence that has been impactful in fundraising, a before and after scenario? Yeah. So, you know, we we started a company a year ago, but it was really three years in the making. And so, you know, we partnered with a group called Global Group when I was the senior vice president at City of Hope. And our idea was the same thing, was that patients come in every day, but they all have different experiences. Mm-hmm. They're seen for different reasons. They're seen a different amount for, for different reasons. So, quantity of visits, um, what language did they speak, what insurance information they have, what doctors did they see. And so we started really unpacking this and and found out that there are strong correlations between a unique amount of experience, patient experience, and whether or not someone is a, a, a good prospect. So the same philosophy applies in religion or higher ed or anywhere. And in the end, we built the first two algorithms that are now patent pending 
We actually just finished our first year in the patent cycle, and we're now in utility patent phase. Nice. Um, but the first people to, to patent this idea of predicting gratitude using big data. And it's been really exciting because I think as an industry, we've become so accustomed to and addicted to using wealth or thinking that wealth has something to do with generosity. And in fact, it, it really has very little to do with generosity. It, it really doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Only 56% of Americans make philanthropic gifts annually. And wealth has nothing to do with it. So so this idea of getting away from that, because it's a really bad indicator, to actually using data to identify people that are most engaged, mm-hmm. that's where it's, it's really exciting. And I think that's where this work in a variety of different ways will be used across the nonprofit sector so that you're, you're not fishing for everyone in the, in the universe. You're looking for people that look like you or look like your prior donors. And so it's creating personas of what your donors look like and, and lit- literally letting you focus in on a much smaller group of people. And ultimately identifying engagement to identify gratitude. So was their experience positive and how does their gratitude then get translated into fundraising? Yeah. Yeah. And when I say gratitude, it really is around engagement because, mm. you know, I'm a, I, I've spent the last two decades in this field and I think we know, you know, money, money, philanthropic, you know, gifts follow engagement. The path to every great donor is about how engaged somebody is within an organization. Mm. Gratitude is really the manifestation of that engagement into a gift. Yeah, so it's really about affinity, engagement, and it's exciting to see how organizations can create out of, say, a million patients that might come through an average hospital a year, how they may be able to use AI to narrow in on the 500 that they actually should be communicating with in personal ways versus just getting lost in the sea of, you know, endless disappointment. Right. So can you tell me about a story of when AI has gone terribly wrong? You know, it's something that I, I think about a lot. I We have seen a couple examples. So AI is a, is a tricky kind of beast. It, there's an art and a science to most AI applications, and there's lots of different types of AI. The area of AI that I really, I worked in for the last several years and have focused in, in studying is called machine learning. And machine learning can also create biases in things where it can start making assumptions that aren't true based on a machine that's just kind of going down a bad path. And so there's ways to mitigate that. And we do a part of machine learning that's called supervised learning, where we don't let the machine make decisions on its own. Mm. We actually have the machine tell us what it's learning, and then we can validate that and apply it to an algorithm. But I've seen cases in the past where people that frankly are untrained that can get download an off-the-shelf AI platform through Amazon, run a bunch of data, and it can go amok very quickly. It can create all types of biases and assumptions that you know everyone that's you know Canadian and is as uh, blue eyes is, you know, they're your best prospect. It requires a great amount of education and understanding of of how the machine is working. And unfortunately, there's several people out there that just don't have that, and they're and they're, you know, coming up with some kind of wonky theories. And and biases are one of the most probably talked about issues within AI right now. So spend a lot of time making sure that it, the machine is not creating bias from race, gender, things like that, but Mm -hmm. it's looking at hundreds of data points and then 
looking at each of those attributes independently. That's interesting. So there's really a difference between good data and bad data in AI, and it needs a human touch is what I'm hearing. For sure. Yeah. You know, in fact, our chief data scientist um, has a degree in symbolic systems from Stanford. And symbolic systems is a multidisciplinary approach, everything from philosophy to, to math and data science. And and you really need that balance between, you know, mathematically, something can look really right and you can validate the math is correct, but intrinsically, you know, it's wrong. And so having this broader understanding of like, how did it come up with this? Because one of the things that happens in AI sometimes is there are two data points that actually are saying the same thing. And in essence, if you're using two of those data points, you're double counting. You're basically giving too much credit wow. to a certain area, okay. like your blonde and blue eyes where, you know, whatever. So, so you have to be very careful that the variables you're using are independent of one another. I see. That's pretty interesting. So how does a organization work with AI like you? Yeah. So, I, you know, I, again, I think this is the tip of the iceberg for the field. We're seeing some really easy entry points in AI, and I speak on this topic a lot. I, you know, it's exciting that four years ago, I think I gave my first presentation on the future of generosity and AI, and people looked at me like, what are you even doing here? Like, I had four heads, and like, it was just, people were not ready for it. And yeah. now, you know, and and frankly, I remember after one presentation, someone said, well, this is great, but are there any real world examples of how this is being done? And And mm-hmm. frankly, at the time, there weren't. There, there were really none. And it's exciting because McKinsey did a report last year that where they found 25 examples of AI in the social sector, and it's growing exponentially. So there's organizations now like uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center up in mm. Seattle, or you can make a donation using Alexa. So you just say, hey, Alexa, make a donation to the Hutch, and you know the, it will do that. And so that's a form of AI. And it's become within reach. Like our company does deep, learning models for organizations that have lots of data and lots of constituents and want to narrow in. But we're also just finishing and getting ready to launch five models that are not based on wealth data, but based on like national data in the consumer files, so census data and things like that. So we have um, access to 300 data points on every adult in America now that we're using to model attributes of generous people. So we just built these five models they are going to be released later this month and that these models will be available to purchase very cheaply by like a local food bank or a Boys and Girls Club or, oh, or any small nonprofit that can't afford what we, we normally charge, which is, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000 a year for our, our custom models. Well, these will be a few thousand dollars for a whole year. They won't, they won't be as accurate, but they will. There is national data and even self-reported data from census and other things that help us understand what do what do givers look like. So there'll be many, many more examples in the near future. And then for nonprofits in the data or in the program, the service delivery, there's lots of application of AI in nonprofits delivering their mission, whether it's delivering blood by drones in mm-hmm. uh, Africa through a company called Zipline. They get an order for blood through a mobile phone, they put it on a drone that they launch, it flies over a remote spot that workers could not get to and drops the blood with a parachute in the specific quantity and type that's needed for that patient. Since wow. they've been operating, they haven't had a single quart of blood go bad since they started working from this kind of hub and spoke 
thing. And so there, it's happening all over in real time. It's really exciting to see how this will improve the human race in a pretty significant way and an efficient way. That's absolutely awesome. I love that example. So for nonprofits who are listening, what should they be keeping their eyes and ears out for in order to be able to obtain access to some of these models that you're mentioning? Is it through donor search that you're able to do this partnership or are you working with other companies that are, you know, that are national and able to help facilitate this learning? Yeah. So there are several companies that are, you know, private companies that are doing AI in the nonprofit space, you have to be very selective. And of course, I'm super biased because after sitting in the fundraising seat for 20 years, I really look at it through the lens of, is this AI going to improve a relationship with an organization? Like, is it going to foster or deepen uh, a new relationship or an existing relationship? And that, to me, is the basis of anything, any evaluation you do, like good or bad AI rests in this idea of, does this help foster a better relationship. Right. If you're looking at things that will automate and AI can automate things all day long, Amazon automates the delivery of, you know, what what you're buying, but also like they have robots pick your stuff up and put it in boxes, which is why they can do this so efficiently and fast. Anything that automates philanthropy, I I really have a hard time with. Like I I feel like philanthropy is at risk of becoming more transactional and this idea of automating things through AI will make it more transactional. And I really believe in that relational side of philanthropy that we talk about partnership, we talk about trust, we talk about this, you know, community that comes together for the long long haul. So I would just, I, I, you know, if you're evaluating, you know, someone to do AI, ask yourself the question, does it bring me in closer relationship with the donor or does it just help me bring in more money? And I feel like there's this trade-off between short-term revenue and long-term relationship. And so that's the, the, the dichotomy that nonprofits should really wrestle with as they're, they're thinking through things. Of course, I'm always, I love having these conversations with people that are trying to answer difficult questions, uh, whether it's us that helps them or, or helping them connect with other organizations. Google and Microsoft, Amazon all have amazing, basically free consulting and free AI support for nonprofits. So, you know, if you're looking at solving difficult problems, there's money and resources out there that are available, which is really exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. And do you have any thoughts on how they would approach that request to some of those big dogs, the big corporations? Yeah, they all have formal process. So Microsoft has the uh, Microsoft Impact Challenge or Microsoft Good, I think. And then uh, I think Google is the annual impact challenge. So I think last year, they awarded $25 million to nonprofits that were solving, um, trying to solve problems. And about half of those nonprofits had never done anything with AI before. So the grant money, you just have to go to those organizations. And it makes sense. I mean, most of those organizations are under a lot of pressure Mm. to do good. You know, AI is scary for a lot of people. And a lot of unanswered questions around ethics of AI and how does that shake out in the private sector and the nonprofit sector. So they're each, each of those big, I would say Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they have dedicated websites for nonprofits. Yeah, that's great. That is great. So I'm trying to imagine what it would look like to be a school and trying to integrate AI if they are a small private school. Is there a threshold that you're seeing nowadays where you say, 
your organization should be doing this much in annual budget or this many constituents coming through or this kind of database or what are the barriers to entry? Yeah, that's a great question. So pre-AI or machine learning, when we're really talking about this part of AI, you know, there's been regression models for a long time. You know, regression is pretty standard mathematical formula that's been around forever. And really what it comes down to, if you have more than 10,000 records and you have more than 24 variables. Records meaning people in your CRM. Database. Right. Yeah. So less than 10,000 constituents, AI will not be able to, or machine learning, be able to find strong correlations. It's really 10,000 is kind of that threshold where it will outperform regression. Okay. So there's the two characteristics. One is 10,000 records or more. And the benefit is that we have clients that have two and three million records annually, and we can process a client with three million records within 10 hours. So it's like, it's powerful when it gets to very large scale. The other part is how many variables. So if you've got 10,000 records, but your data set is really narrow, you only have 10 or 20 attributes for any constituent, AI will not perform better than regression. So when you get to more than 24 attributes and 10,000 records, AI will outperform all day long. So it's kind of those two conditions, like how many records do you have and how many attributes do you have? And and that's how most places have to you know kind of judge. Uh, still, the cost of machine learning is more expensive than what most small nonprofits would, you know, want to spend. And which is why I think I was asked the question a few years ago at an AFP meeting I was speaking at, like, when can the local nonprofit access this form of AI, which led us to really the creation of our light product, which will go to market and be available really affordably. And so it would be in essence, you'd have, you know, even less than 10,000 records less than 24 variables, but you can plug it into our algorithm, which is based on national data and be able to get results that you couldn't get otherwise. So, you know, right now, I'd say 2020 is a year where AI becomes accessible and affordable for the larger nonprofit community. And of course, the more you spend, the more accurate answers you get, but it is not out of reach for a small nonprofit that is wanting better insight into their data. That's so interesting. And then, of course, the next step that I want to make sure we share is once you've got the data, then you're segmenting the list. So you know, do you do major gift engagement? Is it legacy giving? Is it special events? And then you can be more discerning about how you're reaching out to your community, ultimately creating a tighter community because you're able to speak to them with more insight as to what will resonate with them regardless of whether they like a dog or a cat better, but we know whether they have capacity to give or they like to go to events or they want to meet with you one-on-one. Maybe they're, you know, a certain age bracket or marital status. I really think about it as a two-sided coin. You know, Uh for for our industry, we've only ever had a one-sided coin. It was like, does this person have capacity and can we get them engaged, right? That's kind of how the approach has been. Like, if they're wealthy, then let's find ways to engage them because money follows engagement. It really, it should be the opposite of that. It should be first on the first side of the coin is, is this person engaged or do they have the, do they look engaged compared to other donors in the past? The other side of the coin is, if that's true and they they rank high in engagement, then how much could they possibly give? So, well, wealth screening is actually a pretty poor indicator of whether or not someone is likely to make a gift. 
it's actually a really good good indicator of how much they have capacity to give. So we like to think about it as that two-sided coin where you kind of keep those separate. You first find out if they're engaged and then, you know, then you know to put them in a portfolio or send them, add them to an annual giving pool or, or invite them to events. The wealth data will help you segment it into like how proactive am I going to be? Is this person a major gift prospect or are they going to go into our direct response program? That's great. That's very interesting. And you and I were just talking recently about stewardship and does AI inform stewardship opportunities? Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the areas that AI can do a lot of good for the nonprofit sector. I mean, I I spoke at the Association of Donor Relations Professionals last year in Miami, and it really got me thinking about how, in general, nonprofits communicate in one voice, in one way to all constituents or in in broad groups of constituents, like principal gift people here, they get this communication, major gift people, and then annual gift people get get different communication. The, The future of AI is this idea of personalization to the point that AI can actually understand where somebody came from individually and help you communicate in the right time, in the right tone. And and that's still a ways away. But there's lots of examples where AI can be used to help you engage people. If we know that, if we unpack and how people make gifts and when they make gifts, you know, seasonally or based on other criteria, you can start to communicate in a way, in a way that is at the right time and the right voice. I think in general right now, organizations do a really poor job for the most part stewarding donors because Mm -hmm. their metrics are based on how much revenue they're going to generate, where AI can be automated to send emails to people more frequently to say, we're just thinking about you. And so there's some practical applications that exist today. It's just not at that extreme personalization. Yeah, I find that fascinating. So what have I missed in terms of AI in the world of technology and figuring out how to sort through data, good data, bad data, tracking digital footprint? Well, I know, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, enough about, you know, good and bad AI. I think that's something that keeps me up at night, that the nonprofit sector will fall into a trap to use AI to generate money without thinking about the consequences. So generate short-term money, but you're actually giving up your relationship with a prospect to a machine. Mm. And, you know, I think that will just not play well for our industry. In fact, if you look at, at Europe, philanthropy is much more transactional. It's much more membership driven. And, mm. you know, it's part of society that you become a member of the, you know, museum or whatever. It's an expected norm, but there's not those deep relationships that we have like in the U.S. I mean, if mm. you look at even the last few weeks, there's been $4.3 billion given to COVID relief in four weeks because there's, you know, we're a generous nation. I really hope that AI and nonprofit leaders are willing to ask the the question of maybe the short-term result is not exactly cash in the bank tomorrow, but this will help me build longer relationships that will play out for a long period of time. And then the last part that I'm spending more and more time, and I would have said this wasn't even really a topic last year, is on the ethics of AI in the nonprofit sector. So myself and a friend of mine are leading a discussion group with the Nonprofit Alliance out of D.C., on the ethics of AI and in the nonprofit sector. So, you know, what I think could do a lot of damage to the nonprofit sector is a scandal like Cambridge Analytica, which, you know, in essence, AI 
across all AI that they do the same things that Cambridge Analytica is doing in terms of using big data to identify, in their case, who is going to vote a certain way. The difference is that they were accessing that data illegally. Mm. And so, you know, in this arms race for, for prospect intelligence, I get concerned that nonprofits will kind of take shortcuts or not ask questions of where they got the data and whether the data is actually public data or did they get it through some other channel that is is not appropriate. And, you know, of course, in California, we already have CCPA that governs consumer privacy. It does not apply to the nonprofit yet, but I think nonprofits should act as if it does. Yeah, They should disclose on their websites what data they have, where they've got it. And frankly, what happened in Europe when the similar legislation passed, which is called GDPR, is that nonprofit organizations lost 50% of their constituents overnight. And that was two years ago. And it a, it's going to be a long time until they rebuild land speed to the point that it was. So yeah. I think that's coming in the U.S. I think there will be federal legislation on nonprofits and how they have to be accountable for and track the data that they have and then disclose on their website and through other ways what data. So I think ethics in, in nonprofit will be something that we haven't had to deal with at this level, but I absolutely think it's going to be a big topic in the next two years. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It makes me think of all the time spent learning about HIPAA and how do we relate donor information as well as patient information in healthcare sector. So I imagine it's it's in the same vein. Exactly. Yeah, those that are familiar with HIPAA and familiar with that that patient privacy, obviously, it's very similar to that, which was a natural right. extension why we started in healthcare. And I, you know, firmly believe that that similar type of privacy standards will will go across all verticals, not just the private sector, but the nonprofit sector also. Right, right. Well, it's very interesting. You are just such an inspiration. I am so in awe of how your mind works. And I'm impressed. I'm inspired. How did you get into philanthropy from the very beginning? Will you share your story? Um, I know that's in your TED talk, but just we've got a couple more minutes and I just want to humanize sure. you a little bit too, because all this AI is making me dizzy. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because someone called me a Renaissance person a Renaissance years ago. And I was kind of offended by that because I'm like, no, I'm really good at this one thing, but I, I do enjoy you know, frankly, because I, you know, I read a lot and I'm yeah. just always learning. I have to detox and go home. And I do like, you know, I do a lot of wood turning and yeah. build furniture and things like that. Just to it's something, it's just for something totally different. But, you know, I got into nonprofit the same way a lot of people do kind of on accident. And I was, uh, I, you know, I, I grew up going to a boys and girls club and I was a board member at a local boys and girls club when I owned my own business, which was the dot com in 97. And it was the thing that you should do and give back to the community. And yeah. it was my like third month on the board and the director came into a board meeting and said, Hey, I quit. And uh, literally just it was like move into Idaho. I'm, I'm out. Peace out. Good luck. And I was getting my MBA at the time. I just sold my second business and had agreed to, to basically come in to the boys and girls club and, and kind of take care of the shop. And I thought, honestly, in my head, I remember, like, I can do this for about six weeks or so and until they find somebody new. And, and I ended up there six years and ended up launching my career. And talk about School of Hard Knocks. I mean, local nonprofits, you know, you wear every hat. And 
I, I credit every success I've had to those early days of having to be the janitor, the grant writer, the fundraiser, the program officer. I did it all. And uh, I have so much respect for those that, that do that every day, truly, because it's hard work and it's not for your own gain. But in all that time, I never felt like I went to work for a day. The most rewarding, you know, part of my career. And it's just been a very rewarding career. And then, you know, just one thing led to the next. And, you know, I think there's a desire for people to lead nonprofits with business discipline and rigor. And having been, you know, more trained in, in business and an MBA, I was always kind of bent that way. And it's just been uh, one thing after the next. So it's been exciting to see uh, in 20 years the teams I've been able to lead and, and the nonprofits that just do great work and continue to thrive. And um, I just love the sector so much. Oh, I love it. Well, you are such an asset to the sector. Thank you for all that you do for you so are, yeah. many nonprofits that make a major difference in building community. So that's what this is all about, in my opinion, is really figuring out why do nonprofits exist? It's so that we can support each other. We can have a community that functions and takes care of those who have needs and allows opportunities for those who have means but don't have resources of time or expertise to contribute and make that impact. Well, I think the same about you. I mean, you've always been an inspiration to me. And, I, and oh. you know, for you to advance this conversation, I mean, you're extremely talented at what you do and been fortunate enough to be able to work alongside you for many years now. And But for you to take this next stage and, and convene and bring people together and talk about important issues, I think is amazing. So oh, I, awesome. I, you, you. you deserve a lot of credit. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's It's my pleasure. It's really my passion. And we'll see how this all turns out. You know, if anybody ever listens to it, but I'm happy to have you. And I'm just so delighted to explore how we create community in, in so many different ways in the nonprofit sector and in the for-profit sector. So AI is one of the most exciting elements of, of society right now. It's the gold. So data is gold at this point. Yeah. I'm glad that you're the expert. And I'm so glad that you're my buddy and that you joined this video <laughs> and, and audio podcast vlog so that I can spread this information on your behalf that you awesome. can do it really. So I give my guests a chance to celebrate one organization or one person or one movement, anything that they want. It could be your favorite store or it can be your favorite nonprofit, your favorite person, somebody who needs love. Oh my word, that's that's a hard one. There's so many people I admire that have frankly been supportive of me, you know, throughout the years. I think, you know, just not nonprofit, but in general, I, I'd have to say probably Lolly Daskal, who, you know, you know and and is the coach of mine for many years. And as much as it is to to, you know, go to a job and do great work, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is managing people with authenticity and transparency yeah. in, in a way where I truly I just feel so blessed to have been in the lives of so many people. And Lolly really is this a mentor and coach is, is a, has been a guide for me for many years. I could have never achieved what I have without her. So who, everyone has someone like that. And it's, uh, you know, take the time to, to stop and thank them occasionally and just, uh, remind them of how influential they were in your life. So oh, I'm so glad that you highlighted her. We'll be sure to put her in our show notes and hopefully we can get her on the podcast really soon. So um, she does incredible work. I love the book that she just wrote and is promoting right now. So thanks for shouting her out. And where can people find you, Nathan? 
So the easiest way is LinkedIn. It's just right. my haven. So Nathan yeah. Chappelle on LinkedIn. And, you know, I'm pretty good at uh, responding to people. If, you know, you want to send me an email, have questions. I've never said no to request to connect with people that are in our sector because just they, they come from a good place. And so mm. I do pride myself in, and really enjoy connecting with like-minded people. So that's probably the easiest way. All right. Well, we'll put it in the show notes, but Chappelle, I want to make sure everybody knows it's C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. So two P's and two L's. Yeah. Like chapel with two P's and two L's. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, that's it then. Thank you so much, Nathan. I really appreciate the insights you've shared. That wraps up this episode of Creating Community for Good podcast. I hope the episode about artificial intelligence and predicting gratitude has been helpful. If you have thoughts about other topics you'd like to explore through this podcast, let me know. Also, if you're interested in sharing your area of expertise or philanthropic evolution on this show, let's connect. The best way to reach me is on LinkedIn using my name as the handle. That's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-S-I-M-O-N-D-S. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, what you can do to support this effort is go to Apple Podcasts, Subscribe to the Creating Community for Good podcast, rate it, review it, and share it with friends. Until next time, be well. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.